0: This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. On Night Shift, the habeas gravis is a lot faster. It's like they don't mess around. going to sound a little kooky. I think if you love an animal like a chicken, (laughs) the eggs you get from that chicken are going to be better for you.
1: Welcome to Diaconas, at Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver, and my guest on this episode is an accomplished, decorated, and active police lieutenant with 16 years of experience who works for a local police department. He's also a friend of mine and a brother in Christ. So I'm honored that he has agreed to come on the podcast. Just like all active officers I have on the podcast, he is here on his own volition and is not representing his department. The things discussed on this episode are his own and I'm excited to have him. I'd like to welcome Lieutenant Glenn Stoltzfus. Thanks Glenn for taking time out of your busy schedule and sitting down
0: with me. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, man. So you got the last name Stoltzfus. Uh I got the last name weaver so let's let's talk let's talk mennonite let's talk uh <laughs> actually you you come from Amish
0: background right sort of okay, so both my parents were born into old order uh full on horse and buggy Amish families, so they also happen to be uh, my dad's the oldest son in his family. My mom is the oldest uh daughter in her family uh dad's like a year and a half a year and a half older than my mom. So when the two of them hit 18, uh, independent of each other, they choose not to stay in the old order tradition. So they weren't baptized into the old order church and they decided to kind of move on from that. So they were like, it's like conservative Mennonite. It's called beachy Amish or beachy Mennonite, but it's drive cars, but you know, no TVs, stuff like that. So, they start a family up here. Uh, I'm 10 months old and we moved to Florida. So, I don't remember, you know, being born here. I I recall growing up in Florida. Okay. So, we go to a pretty strict conservative Mennonite church down there. Um, no TV in the house. Uh, we would, I remember we would rent a VCR a couple times a year. Rent a VCR. Where do
1: you rent a VCR at? Like pre, I guess block,
0: pre-Blockbuster.
1: pre Yeah. Pre-Blockbuster. Actually, yeah. you might have been able to rent a VCR at Blockbuster too when Blockbuster yeah. was around. Yeah. So we would
0: rent a VCR for like a weekend we'd have a VCR. <laughs>
2: and we'd watch movies. <laughs> Those were good <laughs> oh, weekends.
0: Yeah. So uh, yeah, real conservative upbringing. Three older brothers. They're all great. Um, I'm, the, I'm the youngest of the four. We moved back here in like 91. So I'm 11, and we're back in Pennsylvania.
1: Okay, so I just want to back up a little bit. So your parents both left the Old Order Amish Church separate each other. They didn't know each other when they left. They no, both...
0: they were. Da- I think they were dating by then. Okay, and I think they probably made that decision sort of together. Uh, I never actually asked him that, but I know both of them decided at 18 not going to get baptized into the Old Order tradition.
1: Now, what would have happened if
0: they would have got baptized into the Old Order? So if you're baptized in and then you leave, it's families handled it a little differently. There is something called shunning. Uh, in my mom's family, shunning was like this. So some of her siblings did the old order thing and then left. So I never knew this as a kid, but this is this is interesting. Say family Christmas, and we're at her parents. So my still old order Amish grandparents. There's table set up, tablecloths covering it. I don't know this, but there's a crack between two uh of the leaves, table leaves. Crack in the table and the people who are shunned are at one end and the people who are not, like my parents, can sit up with my grandparents. I never knew any of this. So it, it I know from what I've heard, it did create somewhat of some uh strain dynamic here and there, but it wasn't anything like. Uh, it didn't really affect the family that I could tell.
1: It's just so odd. It it it's almost like if you make that commitment to be baptized into the church, and then then you leave, it's almost more more of a problem than if you yes. just decide to leave before you you get baptized. One hundred percent.
0: Yep. Huh. Now, and it all depends on the church, the family. What does shunning look like for us? It you know. Everybody, everybody was still was together. Right, like it wasn't like oh, Uncle so and so, you know, he's not allowed to come around. You know, it was still uh, good family times. But little did I know, cracking the table under the table. So
1: th- there would still be conversation. They would oh, still yeah, interact yeah. and stuff. Oh, yeah. But just the crack in the table was the shunning. That, crack in the yeah. table. Wild. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. And then, did you guys ever talk about how you rented
0: VCRs? <laughs> no, I mean. We were just I'm Mennonites, just you, Mennonites but... down there, but right. you know. Yeah, that's just that's a funny childhood memory. Oh, another one was no T V, right? So we had a little thirteen inch black and white that we would play our Nintendo on. But when March Madness happened, you can bet, and my dad was all about it, <laughs> we busted out a a clothes hanger, wire, got some foil and put it back where the antenna connects and we'd be watching some blurry NCAA basketball (laughs) on a 13-inch screen. (laughs) Just for Just for a month. Right.
1: So in Florida, you weren't, your parents and and you as a family weren't part of the beachy Amish town in Florida. You were more like Mennonite. It was Mennonite.
0: It was very conservative, but it wasn't, uh, you know, drove cars. We were homeschooled, but that wasn't everybody. Most of the kids in the church, I think were either homeschooled or private Christian school. Um, pretty sheltered, yeah. And then when you were
1: eleven, you moved back
0: to Pennsylvania. Yep. Moved back to Pennsylvania and connect to a Mennonite church up here that we were there probably till I was sixteen. Conservative, but TVs were okay. So you know, then we then we could watch TV.
1: I'm I'm gathering that the TV was probably not having TV was one of the biggest challenges for you growing up in that atmosphere.
0: I mean, it was just different. Like, well, you you're a really big sports guy too. Yeah, and you know, my dad was cool about it because when there was uh like a the All Star game, we were big baseball people even back then. So there's a place called Gaddy's in Florida, and it was buffet pizza and giant. Uh, it was probably like horrible resolution, or whatever, but big screen in the back of the bar. So we would go, and that's boys could put away pizza and we'd eat pizza the whole time and we watched like the mlb all-star game or if the playoff you know baseball playoffs we'd we'd go down there to watch games because it was like 10 minutes from the house so yeah Um, or we would go to my uncle's place and my uncle had tv so i remember watching the 88 world series with the la dodgers yeah buddy uh at my uncle's we watched a lot of the games at my uncle's or this gaddy's place so okay so we worked around it yeah
1: now, were you in private school when you got back here to Pennsylvania? Um, were you in private school then through
0: high school, or where did you go to school? So, homeschool through eighth grade. Okay. So, once we all hit ninth grade, we attended, all of us attended Lancaster Mennonite. So, that, they're again, like private Christian school, but it, it's bigger. You know, you could play sports. You could get involved. Um, you know, you could... Have a pretty typical high school life. It wasn't like I knew some of the kids that come from uh, the like the real small local Christian schools, and when they would get to LMH, it was like it's like this whole new world. Um, for me, coming from homeschool, is kind of like okay, now I'm now I'm in high school, but it was like a big jump from a lot of the smaller private schools to Lancaster Mennonite. Right,
1: right. At what point? Did you decide you wanted to get into law enforcement? Was that in high school then?
0: No, I had no. I never gave law enforcement a single thought. What did you want to do? So I grew up very fascinated with the military. I wanted to, I wanted to like join the Marines or something, but I knew it would kill my mom. So I was like, eh, you know.
1: Really? She would have not approved uh, of it?
0: No, not at all. Um, that would have broken her heart. So, you know, I'm going up through high school and. I kicked it around, but I never thought about it seriously military. Um, but it was something I was always like, man, I would love to do that.
1: So why would have it broken her heart just because of that Mennonite pacifist Mennonite type
0: pacifism, thing? you know, can't take a life. Um, that whole, now the funny thing is I grew up, uh, my parents were always involved in politics, not involved in politics like themselves, but up to speed on it. Um, at twelve, I remember uh, at twelve listening to Rush Limbaugh because I was homeschooled. So I'm homeschooled, and after lunch, I would turn on Rush while I was doing my my schoolwork. So I always loved politics. Uh, so it wasn't like um, you know they didn't shy away from stuff like that. It wasn't like oh no, government, you know, don't be involved in the government. It was like no, you can't take a life; that's against the Bible. So no military for you. Um, so it was something I kicked around, was fascinated by, but never pursued in any way. Why were you fascinated by it? I don't know, man. I read books as a kid and I was like, that sounds awesome. I want to do that. But you know, and I remember, uh, we moved back here and my cousin, I would watch like Rambo at my cousin's place. I bet mom didn't know about that. Probably not. Um, you know, so as a kid, you're, I think most kids are probably, most boys are probably drawn to heroism, you know, all that hoorah type stuff.
1: Yeah. A sense of duty. Yeah. Belonging to something bigger than yourself, sure. like working mm-hmm. together. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I um, I got out of high school. I I wanted to teach. That was kind of my initial goal. Uh, decided to take a gap year, so didn't go to college. But then I was kind of looking at Millersville for a while because secondary ed or whatever. History fan like I love history, so I wanted to teach um, high school history, but I hit the end of that gap year and i'm I'm working for my dad, I'm making money like I'm swinging a hammer, I'm happy you know construction, yeah, doing construction that's my pop okay
1: and so how long did you do that
0: then? I did that up until getting hired, so what led me to the job um so august twenty eighth two thousand one Right before nine eleven I got engaged, so proposed to Kendra my wife, and that was I was all in for that, and you know we didn't have like we didn't have some set plan she was nursing I was swinging a hammer it was it was gonna work fine um uh, I did feel a little bit like oh, I need to get I need to get into something that's provides for a family a little bit more maybe benefits that kind of thing because i was just a subcontractor for my dad not making a ton of money no benefits you know a week's paid vacation that kind of thing so august 28th we get engaged 9-11 happens and my early days later yeah two weeks later my instinct is go go sign up like go to the recruiter right now go sign up so i'm kicking this around in my head not talking to her about it. I'm just like this is what's going through my head, and I knew I somehow knew, and I think I'm I'm right. Um, I knew if I did that, we were not going to get married, and I felt like I promised my life to her, and I I I wanted that. You know, I wasn't like oh well, I'm stuck now. It was like hey I I promised my life to somebody. For me, marriage is for a lifetime. You know, my parents have uh, shown me that way, and I believe that. And so I felt like if I go sign up, I'm probably walking away from that. And I think I would have been, realistically, because I think it would have been uh, any, any of the branches. It would have been uh, boot camp and deploy, and then probably deploy again and again, and, and right. I would have, you know, lost that. So... I never look back at that and I'll never call that a regret. Um, I'll say that not serving in the military is probably the closest thing in my life to a regret, but I don't regret it because of what I have now. I have my family, I have my wife, four kids. I wouldn't trade that for anything.
1: Yeah. So you worked through that. You worked through, okay, going into the military means that I'm kind of breaking a commitment I've made. Sure. And then how did that, morph into going the way
0: of law enforcement then so we had decided from the beginning short engagement we weren't we weren't about having a long engagement so we were engaged seven and a half months got married in uh, april april 6 2002 so now we're married and now kind of reality is setting in in terms of i don't make a ton of money I have no benefits, we want kids, like our benefits were coming through her because she is a nurse, but we agreed from the beginning that if we have kids, you know she would stay home, and that was a mutual choice. It wasn't like me uh yeah, I'm Amish and you're staying home uh, so so I start thinking, and the year anniversary of nine eleven is coming up. And I don't know if I like saw a book somewhere or something. I remember specifically driving past the old police station and I see um I see a guy who looks like he's in like tactical gear. He's got a rifle on his shoulder and he's he's guarding the police station. Go around the corner and I see another guy in front of City Hall. I was like, wait, those guys are serving. They're here the threat is now here. You know, this is still less than a year after 9/11. You know, everybody thinks more attacks are coming, especially with the anniversary coming up. And I start thinking, hey, I can I can serve here. I don't have to go abroad. I don't have to join the military. I can I could be a cop.
1: And it never really dawned on you before then, like serving in that
0: that's really interesting. Never once. So it literally was 9/11. For me it was it was nine eleven, um or the, you know, the upcoming anniversary of it. And I remember it being about June and um, I'm laying in bed next to Kendra at night and it's like 10 o'clock at night. And we're not asleep yet. And I'm like, hey, hey, what would you think of me becoming a police officer? And she's like, what? What are you talking about? Like this has never come up. This was never a thought in either of our minds. Wow.
1: I, what's also interesting about what you were saying there is, so uh, September eleventh two 2001, and you're now talking about June, 2002, mm-hmm. I was on the job by then, and
0: I don't even remember that we were still guarding buildings. Maybe it was something that I, that was more like recent after. Yeah. But I, I lived in the city at the time, and I remember seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe it was just June until I brought it up. Uh, you know, yeah. But I brought it up and she's like, You're not like, no, that's, that's crazy. Why would you want to do that? I started telling her, Hey, I, I feel like a sense of duty. You know, I want to, I said, I want to do something. I feel like I have to do something, you know, because we were under this threat at the time. And I just felt like I had to do more than swing a hammer. Not that there's any, there's honor in that. Right. It's hard to provide for a family doing that. So, and I never wanted to own my own business or be like a contractor and that's, that's kind of the only way to make decent money.
1: So, would you say the call and the sense of duty weighed higher or the fact that you knew that it would be a good way to provide for a family or was it kind of the same or was it just, was one kind of like made the other better?
0: I wanted to do it and then I looked at Oh, salary's not terrible, you know. There's good benefits. Yeah. So to me the 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 pay, it was never about the pay. Um it wasn't even really about the benefits. It was I felt like I got to do something. Um and I just felt that in my heart and um so that's uh like summer 02. Uh she worked with the wife of like a local chief. Like small town chief. Um she tells this coworker, "Hey, Glenn's interested in pursuing a career." So this guy says, "Hey, tell him to give me a call." Spent like about a half hour on the phone with him, and that's when I was like, "Okay, yeah, this is what I want to do."
1: Cool. So then, when did you take the test? when When were you officially hired then?
0: So it took me three test cycles. My first test was—I know it was the winter. It was probably early winter 03. The test was indoors because there was a bunch of snow. And I took that test. I think like six or eight guys were hired. I passed everything. Like I didn't watch out, but I just was too low on the list. I didn't get get interviewed or anything. Um, So I tested again six months later. And they didn't hire anybody. But I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I'm going to keep after it. I didn't test anywhere else. I just tested for just just that one agency, the jurisdiction you went to. Yeah, I just didn't. I didn't really want to work anywhere else. Uh, I looked at it like it's urban. That's where I want to be. Um, so it's dragged on now. I've tested twice. Um, I kind of took solace in the fact that hey, nobody got hired the second time. So it's not like hey, I didn't hire anybody. So it's kind of like, all right, I'll well, I'll keep after it. Um, and I decided I'm going to test again. And a friend of mine was in like cabinet making, and he had a good job, and he worked for his father-in-law. And he's like, "Hey, if this police thing doesn't work out, you should come check it out." So I actually went and visited the plant and started looking at what he does and everything. And I started wondering, like, like am I, am I an idiot? You know, am I? Am I just chasing something that's not going to come to be? I decided is my last time. Um, So I take the test again, pass everything again. I'm I'm in the process, and I find out I'm number two on the list. Now, before this happens, while I'm still, like, pondering everything and wondering, am I, like, am I... Because I was starting to wonder, am I... Is this God's will? Right. Or is this my will? So trying to figure that out and sort through that. Um, we're in church one day and it's a whole new song. Um, we're in church and there's, we're in the middle of like worship or whatever. And, um, I remember I was like, eh, I'm not really into this. And it wasn't like a, I should rephrase that. It wasn't like a, oh, this is boring or this is dumb. It was like, no, this isn't what I'm supposed to focus on right now. So I sat down, opened my Bible, opened it to Romans thirteen. No kidding. So open it to Romans thirteen and read read that. And I'm I wrote in the margin in my Bible. I'm called to law enforcement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I I don't think you ever told me that before. That's a really uh cool story. And I think it also just speaks to um that call, that calling, yeah. Um, I mean, of all the passages you could open your Bible to,
2: yeah,
0: it's wild. It was it was that one. Yep. Um, and it's the uh, sorry cutting you off. It's the because uh, the New King James Version, and I love the way it phrases it. it says that uh, the governing authorities are ministers of God to execute wrath on evil doers, and I was like, yes, that's what I want to do. <laughs> right. Um. I don't, I don't mean that in like a violent way. It was like, but I felt that like, yes, that's that duty, that honor, honor in it. Uh, I told, I told my mom, cause she was not thrilled about this. I'm like, mom, look right here. Look like these guys are ministers of God. They might not know it. A lot of them don't. Yeah. But they are,
1: you know, it's right yeah. here. I think, I think you touched on something that's really important about that passage that it doesn't say, that those that are believers in that position are put there by God. It says they, all of them, even the ones that, that don't believe the ones that, you know, don't have any relationship with Christ, um, no relationship with God, uh, even scoff at it at Mm -hmm. times. Yeah, Even they are put in those positions and they're put there to, uh, provide praise and help to those who keep the law and to yeah, right. bring wrath down mm-hmm. on the lawbreaker and, um, the emotion and the calling behind that, uh, the emotion behind that calling for, for you. Um, so I think that's really, that's really cool. So after sharing that with your mom, did that help change her mind at yeah, all? Or
0: It did. And she saw like my passion for it and she saw that I really, I really did want uh, and feel and felt the call for it. Um, my, no longer Old Order Amish, but my mom's mom. We're at like a family get-together. And she was, at the time, like beachy Mennonite or beachy Amish. So okay. So pretty conservative. She's, uh, and Grandma, you know, mummy. That's the Amish way. Uh, she's never afraid to speak her mind. She's like a true, like, legit woman of God. So... Uh, she pulls me aside, just me and her in the kitchen. She's like, Glennie, why do you have to become a police officer? And I said, Mommy, have you ever read Romans 13? And she's like, Yeah. I said, Okay. Read it and think about a police officer and look at what it says. And I, I've I had too much respect for her. Like, I didn't quote it at her. I didn't like yeah, look here, look at this. You know, I, I said, read it and uh, apply it to this. And then I said, let me ask you this. Would you rather a Christian police officer patrol your neighborhood or a non-Christian police officer? And she said, well, a Christian, a Christian police officer. I said, okay. And that was, she never brought it up again. She never came back to me and said, oh, I read it and you know, I get it. But it was like that side of my family that more like Mennonite um, old ways kind of family really accepted it, and I almost felt like they accepted it from that point on. This was after I was hired, um, so I was already I think on the job or at least I think maybe in the academy. Okay, but then like that side of my my dad's family, you know, when I would show up for get-togethers or whatever, they they ask me, "Hey, what's you know what's going on?" where you work and you know, got any good stories. And it was like their way of saying, yeah, we support you. I never felt, uh, other than that comment from my grandmother, um, never felt any like condemnation. And I didn't feel a condemnation then. It was more like, Hey, why are you doing this? So I think I know she read it. Like that's, you know, she probably read it that day. And then she probably was like, Hmm. Yeah. Right on. Right. (laughs) So, That kind of became like a key scripture for me for a while and um, yeah, I just connect with it and it it was, it was meaningful because of the way I stumbled into it. And I, I didn't remember ever having read it that way before. I'm sure I read it 10 times, right, but never like stuck that way. So
1: I think it's like anything you read in the word, Mm -hmm. you can read it, you can know the story, you can know the passage. Uh, but sometimes the more you read it, the more you glean from it. And um,
0: a lot of that's like situational. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's certain passages, other instances in my life. uh, One that um, I'll probably bring up later uh, where I read a verse that was like very clearly like direct. Yeah. uh, Direct from God. So,
1: right. He speaks through the word brother. Yeah, he does. He absolutely does. So I, I mean I love I love your parents I've met them I've I've talked to them they're they're some of the most loving kind people I've ever been around um so I do think it's interesting cuz your mom it, it like whenever I've talked to her she has been so supportive and I know she is supportive now mm-hmm. but it's just interesting to hear that story of how she kind of had to turn the corner a little bit yeah and yeah. and uh you know I I I guess that kind of surprised me cuz I whenever I've talked to her she's been super encouraging and concerned about what you do, what I do. Um, and, and yeah.
0: So back when we were on night shift together, not to like skip ahead, but, um, she would sometimes ask me some night shift, you know, you can have a quiet night or you can have a, a crazy night, but she would, uh, my mom's a woman of prayer. So she would ask me, she's like, Hey, what's going on at like, I don't know, two thirty last night. I'm like, oh, why? She's like, well, I woke up and I felt like I should pray for you. <laughs> and there were times, I mean, it wasn't always, but there were times when I was like, oh, geez, like, yeah, mom, this was going on. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. And it it wasn't every time. Sometimes it was just like, oh, nothing was going on. But then I, I was thinking about this uh, prior to sitting down with you. I was thinking about this the other day that, how many times did she wake up and pray and like you and I are in a car stop and nothing goes south. We don't make an arrest. A guy gets a ticket, drives away. But, and this is like, I don't want to get too out there, but what if the dude had a gun in the car and we didn't know it? Right. And he just decided, Nah, not tonight. Like, yeah, that could happen.
1: Yeah. You don't, you don't know what you're being protected from right.
0: sometimes. So she would often, she'd pray like. She would tell me, she's like, I pray all the time that you never, you never ever have to uh, like harm somebody, right? I'm like, keep praying it, mom, <laughs> right? <laughs> because I don't, I that's not what I'm right. signed up for, like, yeah, you know, it's if it happens, it happens, but you know, it's not a desire of any of us, like, right? You know, we don't want to be in that position, so no, it's a pretty bad position. <laughs> yeah,
1: what's interesting about that story, like, you know, you were saying, or or just that that testimony about your mom and and her praying and you know what if we were on a car stop and the guy had a gun and and he just decided not tonight immediately i'm like i sure hope that wasn't the case like i don't want that guy to get away <laughs> i was like really bothered by it in my spirit i'm like i really hope like we didn't stop a guy who had a yeah. gun and but you know you do yeah. there's times where you, you stop somebody and we had to and, yeah, and and you just you don't have any reason to do a search you don't have any reason to dig any further mm-hmm. Um, then you can. And and you know, there's been times where persons had a lot of drugs or a gun or
0: multiple guns. And And sometimes we got that stuff and sometimes we know we didn't. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And one of the things I learned from you, because I loved working with you, and the weird thing is, you and I only actually worked on the street together like a couple of years. Uh, I did 13 years in patrol and um, really uh, there's only like maybe three that we were, same platoon, same shift, working together a lot. Well your memory's better than mine. But I feel like those years with you, I was I was a veteran officer by then, but I wasn't uh you know, I've never been like a super cop type, you know. Like I'm I'm I was a good cop, but I wasn't like I was never, you know, that guy on my platoon, like, you know, the guy right. that just he just stumbles into everything and he's got all the great instincts or whatever, kinda like you actually. But um That's very kind. You no, know, and, and I wanted to say this at one point. You are the best street cop I worked with, hands down. Well,
1: I, that's very kind. <laughs> I appreciate it.
0: What I learned from you was it's a game. Like, we're playing a game. Sometimes they win. Sometimes we win. Yeah. Um. It's kind of high stakes. It's real. Like, there's nothing. Uh. It's not to be. Uh, we're not acting silly, but it's a game, man. And, you know, you play the name game and you play the hide the drugs game and you play the You know, hide the gun game or whatever, but I liked that outlook on it. Like, don't get, don't get too uh, worked up if somebody's trying to personally dig at you. Like, you know, guys try to work you up or whatever, but like bad guys. But like, it's a game. You know, we're playing a game. It is a game,
1: and I would, I, I think we would actually say that to guys sometimes. Yeah. Like, hey. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose yeah. and tonight you lost because <laughs> there's, there's like a comp, there, yeah, it's yeah. like, there's a competitive spirit there. Sure. And what, you know, what's interesting is that these guys, you know, that are out here committing crime, they do what they do and we do what we do. Right. And they understand the risks they're taking. Uh, we understand the risks we're taking that d- a little bit of the difference is they, they have the upper hand to a certain extent because they know the moves they're going to be making. And many times we're, we're, we, we are, we're having to be reactive to whatever action they're bringing or, or not bringing. Um, But, uh, but yeah, there, it, it's a, it's a cat and mouse game and, and trying to be better at it. I, I always enjoyed that. I always tried to be, you know, that competition of being better than that guy that was doing this stuff. He shouldn't be doing.
0: Yeah. Looking back, I was, I was thinking about this yesterday. It's like, I worked with some really good cops and I feel like I got, I've found favor where I work. I have some level of rank. Um, I, I've done not everything there is to do, but I've been in every division. I've had a really fun career. I've loved my career, but I worked with really good guys. And I can look back and say, I worked with that guy, you, who I learned this from, you know, and I I worked with guys that are now, you know, high level uh, sex crimes investigators, like some of the best around, you know, guys like Gary, Randy, you know, guys that are really good. Those are guys that I worked on the street with some. Right. And I look back and I... I know I can look at a couple of supervisors who pointed me the right direction and a couple of guys that I worked with. And I feel like I benefited from working with talented, hardworking, uh, conscientious, and a lot of them godly cops. And that's, I feel like that's what has led me to where I'm at. Yeah. My career.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I can do the same thing. I, I look back and I, as you were talking, I can think of specific, Mm -hmm. um, people in in my career especially when i was younger cuz when i came on the job and i want to ask you about this is i didn't have a clue what i was doing i i mean i i mean listening to your story it sounds a little more sheltered than even my story yes but i did not i mean i didn't i didn't really know what i was getting into and and um there were guys who i rode with that uh taught me how to be a good uh street cop Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I was able to, to pass that on to young, yep. younger officers, um, as I went on in my career, uh, only because I had been, I'd been taught like yeah. te- yep. the teaching aspect of law enforcement is huge, but how, how was that for you coming on the job, um, with your background? Like what kind of shock was that for <laughs> you?
0: Um, I, I'll admit, I was naive. I mean, I pretty sheltered life, pretty sheltered upbringing. You know, like lower middle class for most of my life, but parents that were together, parents that got along, like, you know, I had a really good upbringing, great upbringing. Um, and so stepping in, it was it was like, wow, this is kind of eye opening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you see things. I think the things that shocked me the most at first were like situations I saw kids in, Mm -hmm. you know, you go to that domestic and your focus at that domestic is to make sure the guy, uh, not always the guy, but predominantly, um, doesn't kill the the gal. And a lot of times you walk away with the guy in cuffs. And so that's, that's over and done with, and and you leave. But what you see in at home, a lot of times is hurting kids. And so that was like, Pretty eye opening just to see how kids how some kids grow up and then to think about how I grew up. It's like, man, no wonder. And then uh the, another thing that really I remember this sticking out to me pretty early on. My first year, I don't even remember. It's like a whirlwind. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I probably didn't know anything of what I was doing. I remember my time with FTOs. Um, I remember my three FTOs, they were all very different.
1: Field training officers?
0: Yes, sorry. Uh but I felt like I really learned once I learned procedure from them. I learned how to be a cop once I was on my own uh and then working with other guys but you learn like how to do things um but you- you you learn what question to ask later you learn how to ask it. you know the difference like, like a, give
1: it give an example, oh man uh, I can think of an example but i i yeah. I thought you were thinking of a specific thing. No, peg. no,
0: I didn't have anything in mind, but it was just more like, yeah, here's the information you need for a report. But then this is how you can actually, this is how you actually talk to somebody. Okay. And get the information you need and I then see. apply it to the law because that's really what we do. Yeah. Is we take situations and apply it to the law. And sometimes it's like, well, I got this round peg and there's a couple uh, square holes that, Are close and you're like which one fits and I remember uh, this stuck with me my last FTO said every charge you bring uh, doesn't matter how many times you brought it read the section and uh, law before it in the crimes code and after because they're most times linked most times uh, flow together he said if you do this consistently you'll see that more things apply or that something applies better um, So yeah, my first year, to me, like whirlwind. I I think I had my field training extended probably because I was naive. Did you uh, really? Yeah, I I was in field training for five months instead of three. Um, and I remember my one FTL telling my first FTL later, like I heard this later years later. He's like, dude, I didn't even know, I didn't know if you were gonna make it. And I remember a point. I remember um probably four months in, um, the FTO, I, I'll, I'll say it, I trusted the most. And I said to him, like, what am I doing? Like, I feel like I can't do anything right. Uh, did he like, say you weren't? <laughs> no, he, he wasn't, uh, Anthony Weaver. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, you're, you're fine. He said the only thing you lack is confidence. You have no confidence in yourself because you got, Like mentally beat up by your last FTO, yeah, because the guy was hard on me. He was trying to test me. It was, it was, it was coming from the right place. I wouldn't even look back and say it was the wrong way to go about it. He was trying to put some pressure on me, and I, for a little bit, wasn't uh, rising up to that pressure. But it was, um, it was frustrating because I was in the academy with one other guy, and he had been a cadet, so he knew like how the flow was he had experience like he had spent two years a cadet on
1: the department yeah taking minor calls doing
0: the reports and all this stuff and so he's like breezes through his fto he's out in the zone and i'm still in training and i feel like a screw up and i just didn't have confidence um and and here's what happened i got out of training and i was like oh i get it now
1: now what was your what was that first day or night shift that you worked on your own like, do you remember that? I
0: remember I 100% that. remember it. I remember pulling out of the lower garage onto that street next to the station, and I was like, I'll try not to swear. I was like, holy crap, I am on my own in a police car. Like, I felt, uh, it was exhilarating. It was. It was like, really finally. I was like, finally, I'm out on my own. I can go do what I want to do. And not in a way to, like, go... Right. off it was you, just, like, you you didn't have what a, am i gonna a, do next like, a field training officer with yeah. his thumb on you i'm going to find a car i'm stopping a car for something like it was i, I just remember being like yes finally you know yeah because it took me extra time i had remedial training
1: dude my reaction was i think i was sick to my stomach for months when they said okay really? you're going out on your own every single before every single shift i felt like i was gonna puke Okay, I I didn't have any, I, my FTOs weren't that good. I had no (laughs) idea what I was doing.
0: Um, I, I can identify with some of that. I think because I was probably in training for two months longer than you were, that it was more of a relief to be out of training than, than it was like, Oh crap, what do I do now? I mean, I had that feeling and I remember first year, I remember nights where I was like, Oh man, I do not want to go to work because i just again think i lacked some confidence yeah. in that first year
1: it's it's really i don't think anyone has a great deal of confidence no that first year and if most
0: you, mo- if you do there might be something wrong with you
1: yeah yeah and and pretty much everyone told me you you're, you're going to take like four or five years before you start feeling comfortable and and that was true for me i didn't mm-hmm. start feeling really comfortable until probably my fourth year where I started really feeling like okay I can handle myself at pretty much any call I generally know what I'm doing but I mean even after 20 years on there were times where I was like I don't I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here yeah like I, and and after 20 years on you have all those years all that information that's constantly changing your yeah. po- policies yeah. changing laws changing uh procedures changing your other agencies procedures are changing and by the end like i in some ways by the end of my career i thought it was harder to figure out what i was supposed to do at a scene sometimes than it was earlier in my career because i had all these like things in my head that oh, were sort through
0: with uh rank comes pressure. Yeah. Because when you're a, a patrolman you can always just worry about you. Call, yeah, worry about you call your fto and say hey what should i do with this? Um or you know as you get maybe to something you're not as sure with call your sergeant and you can get an answer. But then when you're that guy, then I've, I felt that weight differently. I think Um, that when I first made sergeant, um, that was almost more of a like, Oh, Oh crap moment. than that first day,
1: you know what I mean? It was different. Oh, I would definitely say, you know, when I made sergeant there, there was definitely a weight to that um as there should be yeah sure because i think with with each you know change in rank uh comes a certain level of weight and and uh care like you just yeah. you you need to care about your people you need to care about the job you need to care about the community and you need to try to you know figure out how to best lead there's yeah. a leadership aspect to yep. it yeah um that you know, many times is, is lacking. Uh, a, a lot of times I think it's because guys view it as, Oh, I've arrived or, or I have like this status now, instead of realizing that you, like in my mind, I always viewed it as an upside down, like pyramid where as you rise in rank, you actually go further down and it's, and it's upside down mm-hmm. uh pyramid. So you're, you're actually get forced down to the bottom where you're kind of holding up the rest of that triangle above you of people because Mm -hmm. you serve you serve them you're trying to help them do their job for the community yeah um but i don't think unfortunately i i I should say some supervisors some within law enforcement do not view it that way i don't think
0: no it's like any any other uh team job profession right you know you got guys that are good and you guys got kind of a bad. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I'll, be, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> You'll leave it at that <laughs> for now.
1: Yeah. you alluded to it obviously you got you were your on patrol for 13 years.
0: Yeah, so in patrol for 13 years, I remember uh distinctly. So I did first year on the street was all of 05. So I came out of the academy in December of 04 and you probably wouldn't remember this, but I remember that you were leaving my new platoon to go to a specialty unit. Yeah. So you were, I was on your platoon for like a week and then you and a couple other guys left. Um. So then I was on that platoon for a year and that was when we were still rotating. So we were doing two weeks of days, two weeks of nights. So I got experience in both worlds because they are two different worlds or can be. So come out of that and it's January 06 the department has been reshuffled uh Kendra said hey can you can you ask for a day shift we had young kids uh i can't believe i didn't mention mention this before 3 weeks before i got hired oldest daughter born so that was like a time of major right <laughs> change in our household um kendra stopped working we had a kid and i was going to the academy so pretty uh Like an exciting, but pretty intense, wild time. We lived in the, uh, we lived where, uh, where we work and, uh, I lived there for the first three and a half years on the job. Um, so good, uh, day shift and did like four plus years of days. It was four into five. And I remember getting very frustrated. Um, I felt like, there wasn't a ton of motivation among guys I worked with. Um, there were certainly good cops, guys I enjoyed being around, and I liked where I was working geographically in in the place we work. And but I would come home mad, and I would I would vent, and that's okay sometimes. But I remember this one night, just. Looking at Kendra and saying, I can't, like, I've done almost five years of day shift. I have to have, I got to have a change. Like, I need a change. So, she's like, okay, well, what's that look like? I said, I want to go to nights. Like, I said, if I I ever want to be a sergeant worth a crap, I need night shift experience. Like, I can't just be this day walker for... (laughs) for 10 years and then be a sergeant or even go to investigations or anything. Like I need diversified experience if I want to progress in my career. And not that it was about oh career progression. It was more like, Hey, if I want doors to open, if I want the right experience, so I can do a good job in the next role. I need nights. Right. So she's like, okay, I get it. Uh, put in for nights. I put in for nights. I get assigned a night platoon. I think it's, uh, it's either January 09 or January 10. I go to night shift, get assigned to your platoon. Work generally the same area. We start riding together here and there. Uh, not a ton at first, more toward the end, I think, we rode. Uh, but started learning a different aspect of the job because it really is night and day. And I remember being nervous. That's what I. That's why I brought this up. I remember being nervous because I was going to an aggressive, young, like stud platoon. Like these guys I I looked at you guys like you knew what you're doing. Uh you're like you're on it. We probably didn't know what we were doing. Eh, (laughs) More than the shift I came from. (laughs) Should leave it I'll leave it at that. Um so I go to nights and I remember a a day shift guy telling me this this always makes me laugh. He's like Foos. He's like listen on night shift the habeas gravis is a lot faster. It's like they don't mess around. You know if somebody's if somebody needs to get locked up it's not a it's not a long drawn out thing. <laughs> the guy gets snatched <laughs> so uh I just remember the habeas gravis always made me the laugh. habeas gravis so go to night shift and I'm on night shift with you until uh in the meantime did um a training stint and c i d working sex crime cases um how long was that training? It was only two months, okay. but in, in this two-month time period, so this is—if I remember right—January um, 2013. Okay, go up to train, and I actually told the uh, the one supervisor up there. I said, "I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I can handle sex cases, especially with kids. I have young kids." So, at the time, by then, I think we had. Uh, yeah, we had all four by then and they were all pretty young because they're all close together. So um just to throw to put it in there, uh two girls, two boys, all close in age, uh five years separating oldest and youngest. So um so I go to this um uh, mostly kid crime, elderly crime, sex crimes unit. And I'm like, I don't I, I told the supervisor, I'm like, I don't know. Like I'll I'll give it a try. If this is where you want me to train, I'll train here, but I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. Right. Um, so uh get assigned to kind of shadow past guest uh legend Gary Lowe, who I I love Gary. So I, I'm told like, hey, you're gonna follow Gary's schedule, you're gonna work nights when he works nights, uh, your pods, like your desk area is close to his. You know, if you have questions, go to him. So it's a Monday morning and uh over the weekend there had been of what was not known to be a homicide at the time, but baby deaths. And uh, they pull me, Gary, and a couple others from that unit into a meeting and they're like, first thing, like right out of the gate, uh, autopsies at eight thirty. And I'm like, all right. Can I do it? Can I hack it? You know? So we go to um the county coroner's office and uh, I had seen autopsies before when they were at a different place and in those in the old place you were in the room Uh, you smelled it you uh, I know I noticed I never forgot this first autopsy I'm at um, not to like jump around but I noticed there's these old old school blackboards like the green type like a like a kid's school right and there's chalk at the blackboard and all the chalk has blood on it (laughs) because these coroners or these deputy coroners or medical examiners or whoever that's doing these autopsies were making notes as they did the autopsy and they're cutting people open and there's, you know, whatever everywhere. And, and they're taking this chalk and like making notes on the blackboard. I'm like, this is, this is an interesting place. So, uh, the smell got me the most, um, but it was fat it was interesting because it was uh you know, to learn it. I, I think I was still in field training when I went to that autopsy, the first one. So this is now years later. My next autopsy is a kid, uh two a two year old kid, a uh, two year old little girl. So the setup in this facility was you're if you're the investigator, you're an observation deck. So you are removed. Uh there's a microphone there you can communicate with the medical examiner, but no smell. And I remember from the other one hearing like the sound of things as they opened up the body on the other one. And it's right. like it's a uh, it's a visceral experience. Yeah, it's um leaves a mark on you. Yeah. Um, So I was thankful that for this one being uh, a child, child victim that we had that detachment um, and that was key. So we're there and uh, I observed the whole autopsy and Gary makes the notes, asks the questions he needs to ask. I think the, maybe an the ADA was there. if I'm not mistaken. We leave, we go back in. He's like, you all right? I'm like, I'm good. I'm like, all right, I can, I can work these cases. So, I was in that unit for two months, um, didn't handle anything crazy. Uh, but I, I was part of like two homicides in that two months, two homicide investigations, just doing like side interviews and nothing major. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a, I got good experience. Um, hard, it, it kind of sucks to put it that way, but a valuable experience, right. it's hard to call it good valuable experience for the short amount of time I was there being involved in the cases I got involved in, um, learned a little bit more, how to talk to people, how to interview people. And from that point, um, I was like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I I wanted to go to CID. I wanted to go to, to that unit. Um, and it was just, it was weird because going into that, I wasn't sure if I could even handle it. Um, and I look back and I, I say that's like god's grace allowed me to process that because right. i i those cases and even that one with the the child victim and the autopsy like that's not high on that list of like things from this job that mess with me right you now yeah so i
1: think i do think it's interesting that you talk about because when so when you came on the job you already had one kid born yeah um She was three
0: weeks old when I got sworn in.
1: Right. And you were talking about how you would go to domestic, you would see kids, it would affect you. You would think about, you know, the crappy situations these kids were in and stuff. I find that super interesting because for me, the first, uh, the first 10 years on the job, I wasn't married. And the first, uh, basically 13 years, 12, 13 years on the job, I didn't have any kids. And, like there were, there are were a couple things that bothered me with kids. Like you know, a couple incidents I was on that bothered with me with kids. But having kids does change the way you view the job. Even getting married for me changed the way I viewed the job. I think I was a lot more. I don't want to say reckless. I just didn't care as much. Like I just would just, <laughs> you know and then all of a sudden you you get married you you start having kids and you start thinking a little bit like you know why are you still doing these idiotic things that you're doing um but yeah i just thought that was interesting be- that you had that you know level of of concern or or even noticing certain things like that with kids when you were going in these scenes cuz when i was when i was new on the job i mean I don't want to say I didn't care. I just, I just, it didn't, it didn't register with me as much as it obviously registered with you as soon as you started.
0: Yeah, it was, it was like immediate. Um, I was shocked initially when I was new. I remember this from day shift in particular. Uh, Young kids like 13, 14 would be, uh, we had fights after school every day. So we would have to monitor these groups of kids. So I learned that if they got down into my zone and there was still like 10 of them walking together, it was going to be a fight because there's no reason that far from their school to still be walking together. Right. But I was, I would sit and, uh, watch like intersections where I knew fights happened or whatever. And I'd just be sitting there like not messing with anybody. I'm just sitting there in the car. Kids would walk around the corner, look right at me and spit on the ground. And I would just be like this is madness. Like I would never have dreamed of looking at a police officer and just like, yeah, Yeah. like, and that it would enrage me. (laughs) Right. I was like, what is the matter with these kids? Lack of parenting. Later, what I found out, um, is when you grow up in a, uh, trauma filled home, it shapes who you are. Uh, it was probably, when was it? Three years ago, I learned about something called ACEs and actually got into it enough that I, I did some training, like helped train cops on it uh, with this uh, really wonderful uh, woman who is like her life's passion, uh, trauma and trauma-based training. and um, It's called trauma-informed or, wh- or whatever the phrase is. But ACEs are Adverse Childhood Experiences. And there's 10 of them. And this is how the initial metric was set up. Study was initially done in like fairly affluent, like Southern California area. Okay. And was these tests were taken by college kids. This was like mostly affluent, educated uh, target audience for the study. And what they were looking at was trauma and like heart attacks trauma and diabetes trauma and all these different things. So the, there's these 10 areas and just to name a couple, it's like witnessing abuse, uh, being a victim of abuse, being a victim of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. So 10 major categories. And if you're in the like three, four, five and up range, um, what's happening is at a young age, your, your hormones are all out of whack. Uh, there's cortisol being dumped in your brain. There's um, there's just all these hormones that, for the average kid who grew up how I grew up, everything's in balance. You know, I didn't have a perfect childhood, uh, but I didn't have trauma. Right. And so looking back, I recognized that a lot of what I saw in kids was the effect of trauma, um, and it just gave me a whole different. I just looked at everything so different after that. Um, and here I, it was at, at a point where I think at the time I was uh crime prevention sergeant. So I was kind of removed from the street already and I haven't gone back to the street since then. But I think it, if I had known this stuff sooner, like I think it would have, I would have at least seen more clearly why, why do kids act the way they act? Right. And now I get it. And back then, I I, I didn't get it. Um, right. I remember distinctly um, talking about like your your uh, mindset shifts. The first time I was dealing with an addict. So when I moved to that day shift, that all day shift, I moved to the high crime, high drug part of the city. And I worked with guys that were like on it. They were good guys. Um, <clears throat> I learned how to ride a police bike. Got trained on that. And I'm down in these like high crime, high drug areas, and we're hammering. That's all we did. Like we're trying to get drugs. So that was like our our goal: go out and make drug arrests. Um, so I remember the first time I met a broken person, who who was open about being broken. Uh, he's a dude. It was like seven thirty in the morning. I had just left station. He's on the east side. I can remember exactly where he was, the payphone he was sitting next to. And uh right away I'm like something something's out of place with this this young gentleman. Right. So I pull up and start a basically a mirror encounter, start talking to him. Because I think he's there. I'm like, "Oh, he's a fiend. You know, he's he's down here trying to get heroin or something." So I'm like, ah, oh, where are you headed?" and I start talking to him and asking where he's going and where he's in He starts crying. And I'm like, "What is go- like what's going on here?" And he starts telling me he's from the suburbs. He's been addicted to heroin for a year. And he's like crying. (laughs) Like what's going on? And I actually like, I, I wondered about it later. I'm like, I I could get in trouble for this, but uh, screw it. I actually like, I I realized I'm not going to arrest this guy. Uh, There's nothing to arrest him for. Um, uh, but I'm not dealing with a punk. I'm dealing with somebody who's really like really hit bottom. Right. And I actually shared Christ with him. I invited him to the church. I went to at the time. I said, dude, I go to church over here on this street. I should stop in. Yeah. Um, and that was the first time I shared Christ with somebody in uniform, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and afterward I'm like, well, he wasn't locked up. I didn't arrest him. He wasn't a captive audience. <laughs> If he would complain, would I get told, hey, keep you know keep your religion to yourself. Yeah, I'd probably get told that. But right. I was like, this person's broken. He's at he's at his wits end, and maybe he'll receive, like maybe he'll hear it for the first time. So, right. I had no idea what happened to the guy. Never you showed know? up at church. Never showed up at church. Yeah,
2: but
1: I think I think that's a different. You know, as as a believer doing the job, there there were moments where you had very. Um you know in depth conversations with people you you had arrested, and for me, it was few and far between yeah, um yeah, it wasn't a regular occurrence yeah but but every once in a while you would you would have a conversation like that i i never i never um there was very few times where I shared the gospel with a prisoner or, or, or someone I was talking to on the street, uh, for me, you know, I tended to be a lot more vocal about my faith with, with guys I worked with. I always, I always felt like the guys I worked with were my ministry, like my, like side ministry. Like I had this job in law enforcement. It was my calling, but, uh, my bigger calling was, was to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I always mm-hmm. tried to be open with it, with the guys I worked with. Um but there were a couple of times where I was able to to do that, and I think it's just a different world view you know you just view yeah. you view people differently I mean sometimes I did a terrible job like you i mean you just get cynical and you yeah. start viewing people as like you know a fiend uh, just gonna do what a fiend does like there's nothing I can do kind of like a, just like a defeatist attitude, but there were times you'd have someone at the counter that you know at the booking counter it was under arrest, it was at rock bottom Mm -hmm. and you were able to just try to give them something, give them a morsel of something. And even I I saw guys even who, who don't have a faith or who didn't believe doing that for people, Mm -hmm. having that compassion for people, um, you know, that were in really bad and dire straits. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's something that kind of runs, you know, through the blood of, you know, most police officers like, they actually care about people. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you can't care too much sometimes because you just, yeah. it'll just, it'll just kill you. The job will just kill you. If mm-hmm. you care too much, you ha- you have to be able to kind of, um, set stuff aside very quickly and probably not even deal with it completely.
0: Yeah. I can remember three, maybe four conversations like that. Right. Um, and every one of them, I felt like this is a broken person who who may actually like receive what I'm saying, right? Um, you know, and I felt like, and afterward, I would be like, "Was that from the Lord? Was I supposed to do that? You know, is that appropriate?" And I'd be like, eh, "I did." I it. think I think you know? anytime you can, I'm, share, to, I'm a human being. Like I'm right. I'm I'm trying to like help somebody. You know,
1: I think anytime you can uh, share hope. Yeah, and share the gospel. That's from the Lord. Yeah, like I don't think there's any any
0: wrong time to do that. And no one was ever like, "Yo, what do you you know? What is this church?" Like, no, it was never a negative response from the people I was sharing this with. And only one time, one time the guy was in the back of my car in cuffs.
1: Yeah,
0: Um, but again, he's like crying and he's telling me about his story, and it's like, "Yo, man, maybe this is your chance. Maybe getting locked up for a month is gonna." help you clean up when right you, when you come out like check out this church you know? yeah yeah and it, it was more than just that but you know i knew uh, there were uh, a couple churches with good like good addiction groups and you know people they could go to and people that would accept them and love them for, for who they are and yeah not be as judgy as me. <laughs> I
1: I always I always viewed it too like the the church that I'm still part of there's there's an elder there um Bud uh who who does prison ministry at Lancaster County Prison. So yeah. I in my in my mind I was like I am sharing the gospel with them. They just don't realize it. they're going to get <laughs> over there and Bud's going to get a hold of them.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: So you're you do the training stint, and then you actually end up in that unit as a detective for for a while, right? No. So oh, you did. <clears throat> oh, why was I thinking you ended up back up there? You'd got promoted.
0: I, I went up to, to CID uh, initially. I had a good conversation with a sergeant who gave a crap uh, and set me on the right path, Phil, uh, lieutenant now. And I'll never forget this because um, I think I had like seven or eight years. And he was one of our sergeants and he asked me to meet up with him one night. It's like four in the morning. And his question was, or the way I recall it is, what are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing? Coming to work every night? It's awesome. I'm on night shift. Like, this is great. He's like, no, where are you going? I'm like, what do you mean? Where am I going? I'm just, I'm coming in having a good time. It's, this is what I signed up for. It's like, no, what do you want to do next? Like, I don't know. So he, Talks me through some stuff and he's like, Look, uh, there's CID, there's take the sergeant's test, you know. So I start kicking it around and <clears throat> at the time, at the time in our department, if you wanted to go to detectives, you kind of had to go through this other unit. You didn't have to, but it was it was the way, you know. So I actually had a conversation with Kenner, like, hey, can you handle two years of a really insane schedule? <laughs> She's like, yeah, if you want to put in, go ahead. Um I ultimately never pursued that because the door is kind of open in other ways, but he said, "Hey, why don't you go train? Maybe you'll like CID." At that point, I was like, "No, I want to be a sergeant." So, I was going to take the sergeant's test and and go that route. So, I go up and train, and now that I've trained, I'm like, "Wow, this is awesome. This is what I want to do." So I had already taken the sergeant's test and I remember distinctly interviewing and, um, I'm in the sergeant interview and I think to myself, Hey, this is another chance to be in front of this like CID captain because that's where I want to (laughs) go. Like I don't even want to be a sergeant, right? I want to go to CID. So criminal investigation division. Sorry. So, uh, That was like my track. That was what I was after. And then I think because I was relaxed and I wasn't as uptight about the written test or the interview. Right. I did better. And then before any door opened in detectives, I got promoted to sergeant. So that was when I promoted. It was. uh, April
1: 2014. Okay. So sometime later. And then, as a sergeant, you were you were on patrol, and then then you were were you up in detectives as a sergeant. Then,
0: Um, in another training position. Okay. So, at a progressive, and by progressive, I mean forward-thinking, not uh, leftist liberal.
1: (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. Sorry, everyone,
0: Um, who who said, "Hey, I got a sergeant who is interested in investigations," and there's potentially an opening in this same unit, but for a sergeant, say within the next year or two. So, cause there was a, there was a sergeant in the, uh, sex crimes unit that had actually come to me and said, Hey, go to some schools, keep pursuing this training. Cause I'm not going to be here for here forever. And I think you'd be a good for good fit for this position. So I went up again Um, just for another two-month training stint in investigations, but as a sergeant. So it gave me, the interesting thing was it gave me a a look at more how to manage a big investigation rather than dive into one. Um, And I remember I was allowed to go to the supervisor meetings in investigations because I was a sergeant, even though I wasn't really in charge of anyone. Um, And I remember laughing because there was a discussion about Uh, I'll just say a personnel issue and I'm laughing at the table. I'm like, you guys deal with the same stuff up here that we deal with down there. It's no different and it's different, but I was like, okay, it's, it's not that different. Right. Um, so up there, that one, um, I got involved in a really interesting case. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but, uh, another guy in the unit was like, hey, I've had this case. It's kind of languishing. The only thing left to do is go interview the suspect. He's out of county prison. And uh, if he doesn't confess, like, I don't really have a good case. It's like, I have statements. I got I have what I have, but he's like, there's no real, like, I can't lock this in. He's like, go, go take a crack at him. So I go grab another guy who was also in a training position. He was an officer. But he was looking to be a detective, so I'm like, hey, you want to help me go interview this guy? So we take like a recorder up. We go back in this. I remember it was winter, um, because that, that was the easiest time to to get up there and train when summer and everybody's off and whatever. It's busier. So it's winter. It's cold. It's like January. It's first or second day up in this training cycle. And me and this this guy, uh, we go out to the prison. Neither of us really know what we're doing. Like we know how to talk to people, but we haven't been to the interview schools. We haven't had the read technique. <laughs> I know. So we go out, and I'm like, "Hey, we got to talk to this guy. Here's the basic. Like, here's the basics. But if he doesn't confess, we we don't have anything." So we go in there, and it's weird. Like, look, I I don't. I'll keep my opinion of our local prison to myself i'll just leave it at that not a nice place not a modern place what uh what prisons are nice (laughs) well this one i think is is even at the bottom of that list so we go in it's cold and the prison's cold so like in the summer the prison's hot and in the winter it's freezing cold so we get lead we have to dump all our gear and right away i'm like but i need my gear (laughs) I'm in the prison. So we dump all our gear, lock it up, and all we have is this recording device, and we get led through a maze. I'm lost. Like, I have no idea where I'm at or how to get out if something bad happens. <laughs> so we get led down like three or four corridors through multiple locked doors, and we get to this room and the guy's like, all right, I'll go get him. Uh, when you're done, just like hit this button on this old intercom that looks like it doesn't work. Like, I'm not really thrilled about this. So the room's cold and it, it's, it feels like a closet. Like, it's just big enough for a small, crappy old table. It's poorly lit. Like, this is a horrible place to interview somebody. So we pull up these old beat-up chairs and it, it's just it's a nightmare. I'm like, this is going nowhere. So the guy gets brought in and and we sit him down. And we start in and we start interviewing this guy. Young guy, like twenty, kind of a scrawny little fella, um from the southern end, and he's just like um he's just he comes across as like this basically like this ah, shouldn't watch what I say. He's from the sticks, okay? He's just this white fella from the sticks. We'll put it. In. Is that nice enough? You can, <laughs> edit. you can edit that if you want. So we sit the guy down and me and this other guy who doesn't know what he's doing yet. Uh, two hours later have a full confession. That's awesome. And not only did he confess to my forcible felony sexual assault that I was investigating. He confesses to another one in another jurisdiction involving a juvenile. We're like, holy crap, like this is blowing up. So we go through all this and I forget, I think the other guy asked the question. Um, but we had developed some rapport with this guy and he's like really open. At this point in the interview, he's like, he'll tell us anything. So <clears throat> it was just this like something was still sitting there. We could tell something was still bothering him. And I mean, we were in there for a long time and he had confessed to some you know, really awful stuff, right? So he starts telling us how, at eight years old, uh, his best
2: friend's dad, best friend's dad, abused
0: the um, ever-loving crap out of him. Um, Full on, like child rape. Um, awful. Yeah. And I'm like, geez, I, I just, I just got this guy to confess to horrible crimes that he's going to pay for, you know, for a long time. Um, like he's not getting out of this. He's getting, he's going away. But I'm like, the guy's like 19 and he's 1920 and he's telling us how really not that far in his past, eight, nine, 10 years old, like horrible sexual abuse. Right. I was like, well, it kind of makes sense. The guy is where he is in life, you know? Um, so we end up, um, we get the confession, we go back, and I'm like, I'm thrilled that I got, I have a case now. I have this, like, this workable case. Right. Um, start coordinating with the other agency and DA's office. Um, work with a really solid ADA assistant district attorney, Uh Who's just a really good guy. Um, he helps me a ton with the case. We end up uh, combining the two. So all the cases got lumped together, like the, the other jurisdictions, jurisdictions case and ours. It keeps blowing up because I find out that there was a family. When he does the forcible rape of the woman in our jurisdiction, um, there's a family with four daughters who live in the same house and they were all living together at the same place at the same time while he raped the adult. So this leads to like, uh, child forensic interviews. Um, and none of those kids, I could see it, man. Like I knew, um, none of them disclosed. And so there were, there were like minor charges that got tacked on, but I knew I knew he had uh, abused some of those kids too. Right. So it's like, this guy's like a horrible human being, right? Like, right. In my upbringing, in my career, in my worldview, like scum, but at the same time, I know like this kid, he got perped. He got, he got abused, you know? Right. So I always had like this, kind of like this level of compassion for the guy. Um, as odd as it sounds, but cause I felt like I understood like this. The reason he's why the way he is, is because of what happened to him when he was eight years old. Right. Um, it just made me angry. Um, so crazy enough, uh, he gets, he pleads. There's no trial, you know, I don't know. Nothing additional ever comes out with the kids that I'm ever made aware of. Um, but maybe two years ago, so this is back in 2013, and gets locked up. I think he gets like 20 to 40, or 25 to 50, or something like that years. Um, the guy who helped me with the case, who's now a full detective, he's like, "Yo, did you hear what happened to uh, that guy?" am like, "No, what are you talking about?" He pulls up an article, and a guy had been either committed suicide or murdered up in a state prison. No kidding. Um, and it was just like, man, the guy I had the information he gave me about when he was a kid, I passed on to an agency that it would have been really tough, but could have potentially worked. It never heard if they ran with it at all. Don't know that he ever got interviewed again, or that anybody ever went to him. But do
1: you think he would have, if someone would have gone to him? Do you think he would have like been willing to? give a statement, testify, that sort of thing.
0: He, he gave one to us you right. know, and he was, he said he would pursue it. And I'm like, well, it's not our, it's not our area. It's not our jurisdiction, but I can pass it on. And we did. And I right. more than once, like tried to reach out to that jurisdiction. I don't know that anything ever came of it. And it would have been really hard. I mean, he knew, he knew the name of his friend, you know, by first name probably mom could have said, Hey, our neighbors were so-and-so it would have been a tough case. Right. Um, but it was just like the, the way it all kind of ended just pretty sad and terrible. You know,
1: I think, uh, that story speaks a little bit more to a, uh, I don't know, a grace and mercy side that you have than, than. I have I mean I I I understand what you're you're saying and I I guess I guess the one thing that I think about is that experiences never justify sin. Yeah, and, 100%. And I know you agree with that. But because I'm like so man I'm just so justice minded, I'm like I get I get it. He was perped and that shouldn't be ignored and you did exactly what I would have done, like tried to reach out to that jurisdiction, try to, you know, get that, that uh, taken care of. But um, I, I, I just think it says something about your heart that you can have that kind of reaction. Cause I don't, I don't think I would have had the same reaction because I think it's, it's important to, to know, to know the history of someone and to learn from history and to, uh, try to empathize with experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just feel like right now our world is so <laughs> big into experiences may kind of justify sin, and experiences will never justify sin. And and Romans 14 says that, you know, one day we're all going to have to appear before God and answer, yep. and we're not going to be able to say to God, well, back here, this really <laughs> right, bad right. thing happened to me, so yeah. that's why I did this. like. Oh, yeah. You know, um, so, but it does make, it does like, (laughs) it's kind of convicting for me (laughs) because I'm like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm sometimes so justice minded. Like I literally can, you know, um, just set aside that stuff and be like, you are without excuse. Mm -hmm. Um, and by God's righteousness, they are, but at the same time. They've also been sinned against
0: there's mm-hmm. there's sin that's that's happened there before that any of that happened. My first training sent up in that unit. I remember a conversation with probably at the time I would say this guy and Gary are like the best at that uh position uh really, really good detective um smart knows how to talk to people. Uh, I learned a lot from him both times up in those, in that unit. I remember my first year on the job dealing with these two or three brothers and their friends. And they were like 12, 11, 13, right in that age range. And they were hellions. Like, it caused all kinds of problems at the middle school they went to. They were stealing bikes and stuff. Like, I kept going to their house because I had to investigate stuff. They were getting accused of at school. Right. They're hellions. And this one Saturday morning, uh, catch two of the brothers and another kid. Um, they're all like 12 and 13. They're in a stolen car, (laughs) like 12 and 13 year olds in a stolen car. That just blew, that blew my mind. Like I was, that was my first year on the street. And I'm like, this is madness. So, Uh, I just couldn't imagine, like, when I put myself at 12 and 13, like, no, I wasn't going to try to steal a car. So, bad kids, right? Uh, And then as they aged, they got into worse stuff. And they continued to be criminals. (laughs) Like, they they followed in this path. Uh, The one kid, not one of the brothers, uh, I know he's locked up for... A homicide, like he's locked up forever, and I think he got locked up at a pretty young age, not juvenile, but I was like, Yeah, I remember that kid. Like, I remember him being in the stolen car. Um, so for some reason, the um, this detective starts telling me a story. He's like, Yeah, I had this case, and it's brothers, and they had an uncle, and this uncle would give him weed, and then his uncle would perp him and abuse him sexually abuse him. Um, And what I remember him distinctly telling me about, he said, trial was crazy because they were good. Like they testified well, they had compelling testimony, but they're sitting there and they're tatted up and they look and sound like gangsters. I was like, dude, I dealt with these kids when they were like 10, 11, 12, 13, and they were hellions. And he said, yeah, because they were hellions because that was when they were getting perped by the uncle. Because this, this case doesn't come up until years later when they're adults. To, it comes out and, and it becomes a case, becomes an investigation. Arrest is made, like trial, the whole, whole nine yards. But the crazy thing was, I only know until hearing the story years later, I only know them as this family, these brothers that are like cause nothing but problems and and chaos right wherever they lived in my area for years and i think that's like the tension
1: in law enforcement because law enforcement has a very specific mission law enforcement yes. it's in our name yep and we've been or i should say those who still do the job <laughs> <laughs> have been tasked with providing a lot of um help for ailments that they really shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, you know, I'm maybe I'm a simple guy, but the mission of a law enforcement agency is to enforce the law. It's not to be, you know, and you're going to have to pull in some, you know, be able to talk to people and counsel people. and But our main mission is law enforcement. So, you know, people hear a story like that and they're like, you know, what are you supposed to do? You're not supposed to arrest them, and when they're driving around in a stolen car, you're you're just supposed to give them a pass because something bad happened to them. Um, and there's people out there who who believe that, who believe like, well, you know, there's there's so much more going on here. They, you know, this happened to them and that happened to them, and these are the reasons you know why they're doing it. Okay, but they the law still needs to be enforced. Like you yeah. can't just mm-hmm. let them run amok. Um, you know, let, let criminals run amok. Lawlessness breeds lawlessness. Sin breeds more sin, heavier sin. I'm with you. I'm tracking. You know? Um, so, so yeah. So I, I think you can just, even right now, just see a little bit of our, um, I mean, I have a ton of respect for you and we've always had a close relationship, but you can even right now in this conversation, see, a little bit because you say this stuff. and I'm like, yeah, but
0: they still need to. They were in a stolen car. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't. I would never. Um,
1: and I know that's not what you're saying. Never, it's it's right. not an
0: excuse. For me, the the thing that makes me angry is. What's the root of these stories? It's like child abuse. You know? Yeah. I've laid in bed at night and thought. Should there be a real Punisher? not saying me everyone <laughs> but like where is the justice where where is the wrath that these people deserve like oh it's coming because not on this side of heaven but it breeds chaos and sin right and it makes me angry yeah and like i i don't know
1: well and i think that's the that's the the diakonos and yeah. that's the calling you 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 desire justice and it you know for me like justice was always like on a micro thing like i didn't i didn't look macro i, I you know this person is dealing drugs they're in a stolen car they have a gun uh they you know doing whatever they're doing justice is in this moment mm-hmm. like for me i didn't look around macro like well why are they doing this. Well, most likely they're doing it because sin was committed against them. Um, and yeah, I just, I never went that next step. I was just in the, in the here and now, but I think it's a valid question and it's a question that is, uh, it's it's just pure righteous justice will never happen among sinful people.
0: Right. Because we're on earth. We're right, on, we're, we're on earth. place, yeah,
1: and we're not perfect, and and um, but and as I, a and as I'm a,
0: not perfect, and right. cops aren't perfect, and like you know, even right. even our justice system, as good as it is, is certainly not perfect, right?
2: You
1: know, but as believers, we we um long for
0: that. Yes,
1: we yes. long for that. Yeah, and and uh, so I think it's 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 a good place to be, and it's a good conversation to have, and 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 uh, and flesh out, and ultimately people just need Christ. I yeah. mean, you're, yep. uh, you you can grow up in terrible situations and, mo- and, and if you don't have the Lord, uh, yeah, there's a high likelihood you're going to pass on, you know, that, that generational sin, that, that yeah. terrible, terrible sin committed against you. You're going to commit it against other people.
0: Yeah. And I know people personally that came from, I know, I mean, I won't say the guy's name, but a guy I know, I've known him for a long time, a great guy, like, done a lot of good for this world and came from a family where we work, where everyone would know the name, not, not him, but his family's name because he grew up in, in a crazy situation. He got out. So you can get out and yes, you are responsible for your decisions. Right. Um, But ultimately, uh I think he would he would say it it came through faith. You know, he yeah. he's has Christ, you know. And I think that's the the redeeming quality about our salvation. You know, we can uh rise up out of our situation. Yeah.
1: And there's people that, you know, like you said, have been able to do it. Whether they have Christ or don't have Christ, there's there's people who have been able to do it. I don't know. I just, I think sometimes in our day and age, we really shy away from taking any responsibility for actions. Uh, we want to justify or, or blame it on, on something else. And that may very well be a a cause or, or a reason that Mm -hmm. someone leans or goes in one way, but, um, still doesn't give you license to to do whatever you want to do.
0: Yeah, and for the guy who ended up dead in a cell, I'm pretty certain he abused three, maybe four young girls. Right. So, like, was I sad when I heard he passed? No, I wasn't sad. Like, I processed and I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. But, you know, then I started wondering... 'Cause what I what I wondered is should I try to track down his victims? Like dive a responsibility for that. And I never did. Um track him down to let
1: them know just, that he is. Let him passed know away. like
0: hey, he's uh yeah. if you were concerned about him ever getting out, he's not getting out because he's dead. Um and I felt no like sorrow, remorse that he he passed. Um the horrible thing about it is, like, what, what future impact or what impact even up to now? Right. We're talking that case was, I think, that's twenty fifteen. So, where are these kids at now? You know, what's going on with them? How are they? And I wonder that. Like, in my mind, that's when I I process like right. what happened to these people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like there's. I mean,
1: there's been a couple. One case in particular where kids were involved. Actually, you and I were were on it. Like basically a homicide, a murder committed right in front of the kids. We yeah. were right around the corner. We we get in the house, um, and I've I've wondered about those kids. But I have I've thought a couple times of looking them up because I don't even remember their names, and looking them up and seeing. But part of me is like, I just want to remember them as kids because yeah. right, who knows what they're up to now. And also, I don't know that would be good for me. Like it yeah. was such a difficult thing to to be a part of, to, to, uh, you know, storm this apartment right after, you know, one guy shoots another guy in the head in the kitchen and we storm the apartment and the kids are in there screaming. And, and then I, I had the kids for a while. I'm like, I don't know. I don't, it might not be good for me me to have contact with them because, you know, that's a, that was a tough one for me, but.
0: Yeah. No, that's, it's interesting because your recollection of that night is so much clearer than mine. And I think that was like one of the first, I was, I was only on the street probably a year and a half when that happened. And I think a lot of that incident, the way I remember it, it's kind of a blur. I remember it, but. I know you're, and I think it's because you sat with those kids. Yeah. Um, And that, it was more of a prolonged incident for you. It was, for me, I was up in the house, helped secure it. I don't know that I maybe got a witness or two's name. Like, I wasn't heavily involved in it, but you were working the shift. Yeah. And you were part of that incident moving forward and where I was kind of removed from it fairly quickly because I was on an overtime detail, but... But that was one of
1: those incidents where you knew, I knew the kids were growing up in a terrible home. Yeah. You know, like, um, you know, just to break it down a little, a little bit more, the, so you were working overtime detail. I was working shift. We were at a local bar where we always had a lot of problems. We heard gunshots, or I think someone in our group of officers heard gunshots, and then we got a call for a shooting literally right around the corner from where we were. So we get up to this apartment and I, I remember, remember running there. Yeah. We, we ran.
0: It wasn't like hop in a car and drive. We know. Yeah.
1: We, we were right there. And, and yeah. uh, so we stack up outside the door and then um, I don't think we had to kick the door. I think the door was open. So we were able to just gain access. And it was one of these apartments where you, you walked in the front door and you immediately go upstairs mm-hmm. to, to the apartment. So it was a second floor apartment. And, um, at the top of the stairs was a woman who was saying, who basically, who admitted, she's like, I shot him. I shot him. So we, we take the stairs, um, there, I think it was three kids. It was chaos in there. So we get up to the top of the stairs. Um, I take the woman, we had proned her out. I'm on top of her. You guys fan out into like the living room area and then there's a kitchen and the kitchen is guy who was shot in the head. He's, he's dead. Like he was shot in the head. He's dead in the kitchen. Um, there's another dude in the living room and I'm on, on top of the mom's back with my knee in the mom's back. And I, I mean, she just told us she shot him. We don't know where the gun is. So I have my gun like on her, like in her back, on her head. I don't, I don't remember where I had it exactly. Um, not buried, like I didn't have it pressed against, but I was like, you know, I had my gun out. Her. Yeah, I was covering her. And, and uh, one of the little kids asked me not to shoot his mom. So I'll, like, I always remember that, uh, which is just always difficult to think about. And then after the, we got the scene secured and everything, and it turns out the mom had not shot him. It was new boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. It was like a love triangle thing. Um, she had actually not been the one that shot. The other dude had had been the one that shot. But I remember taking the kids and the the oldest kid, the girl. I don't remember how old she was, maybe eight, seven, eight. But the way she was talking to the other kids and talking to me, I it was obvious she took care of the kids. Like it it was obvious that there was no parental. Mm-hmm. Like she was the one that fed the kids. Like she was telling me what each of them ate, what they couldn't eat, what they were allergic to, you know, like she was a mom. And I was like, she was like eight years old, you know? And yeah, so that, that was like, that one, but that, I mean, you can tell it still bothers me. Like yeah. I just cannot. It's ACEs, man. It's adverse yeah.
0: childhood experience. Like right. that has an impact and has a physical impact Has a mental impact. has right. a but had
1: she pulled out a bag of weed or crack out of her pocket, I'd been like, You're going to jail, little girl. <laughs> <laughs> you got to take some self responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, man. But, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just stuff like that. But I do remember, remember you being there.
0: And, and, uh, dude, I was so new. It's still a blur because we talked about that recently and I, I couldn't remember like three quarters of it. Yeah. I think it was just because, like I said, like I hadn't seen brand, anything you know. like that yet. Yeah, on the job, and I was. You hadn't seen a guy laying in a
1: room with a head, <laughs> hole in his head. You know, when we entered, when we went, and ahead, we're not like to be clear. We're not laughing. Like, yeah, yeah this is it's cop. No, guy. it's cop humor. I yeah, yeah I guess uh, when when uh, people, I don't I don't know how to explain to people cop humor. I don't I don't understand how to, how to explain to people like we're not laughing because we think this is hilarious. We're laughing because how you just it's a release valve. You Yeah. You can like, if you don't, if you don't try to find some sick humor in it, you're going to lose your mind.
0: It's a release valve. It's any, uh, pot that's on a boil has got to let off some steam. Right. And it's, yeah, I don't know how else to put it other than that. But the, what I remember is I went left into the living room and I never, I don't even remember. I vaguely remember the guy laying in the kitchen but I don't even, I don't remember seeing him up close. I I think you were dealing with mom behind me. So I moved past you to go yeah. in the living room. Yep. So like what I saw and perceived and processed from that is so different than what you saw and perceived and processed because we just did different things in there. And yeah. to be honest, I didn't know what I was doing to begin with. <laughs> like, uh, I was, you did. Uh, I probably didn't. Um, So, yeah, my recollection of that is just it's so different. Uh, And the things that stick in your mind are those things. And I I asked this question. So when uh, when I helped this lovely uh, woman put to put together this training for cops because she had done this training for just regular folk. And we put it together for cops and we worked on the PowerPoint together and, uh, she's just a real sweet, sweetheart. Um, and I remember asking her the question, uh, what about cop aces? Like what have, what's happening to us through actual trauma or vicarious trauma or just stuff that sticks in your brain? I mean, that's what, 15 years ago. Oh, it's probably it's about fifteen because yeah, I have about, sixteen years I have sixteen on, uh seventeen here soon and I had about a year and a half on, yeah. so fifteen, sixteen years ago. Yeah, And that stuff stuck in there, man. It's in it's oh, yeah. in your mind and it's it, it can affect you right now. Right. So I think there is such a thing as cop aces. I don't know how else to put it. Um we experience trauma and right. uh it leads guys to drink. It leads guys to spend money on dumb things. <laughs> it leads guys to uh, have poor relationships. <laughs> yeah, I'll just put it that way. Um, it's just that's that's an area that I still haven't really wrapped my head around. Like, how do you address it? You know, I know like EAP, which is. Uh, basically counseling it's it's an avenue for counseling services for cops and other first responder types right. um, um but that's kind of frowned up it's not frowned upon it's not utilized very often um i know i have a very close family member who's been through uh hard things and hard things that required intense ongoing counseling and like a period of about six months where it was six hours a day, three days a week. Um, and I know there's value in it. Like I know it, I've seen it, I've seen it work. Right. Um, but for whatever reason, cops don't do it. Uh, there was times I was at a trauma conference about a year and a half a year and a half ago, and by the end of it, I was like, I think I need counseling. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we talked like not long after that. Yeah, and I considered it, and I uh, because that conference, which was a trauma conference, brought up a bunch of vicarious trauma that I've experienced, and you know, so the, it's funny because our our take or our our, uh, our little bit different worldview on some of this, I think comes from that. I think it comes from me uh, just having a couple of different conferences and training and looking at trauma differently and seeing how trauma, uh, I feel like I'm just saying trauma, every other word trauma affects people and has like long lasting effects and it can change like changes your physiology changes like your heart, like physically Um it can lead to like heart disease later in life. Like it's, right. it's, it's it's a deep thing, uh, and I don't think we as cops deal with trauma very well. I've dealt with it through my faith and through a very strong relationship with my wife.
1: Yeah, and I honestly don't. I've all, I've sometimes wondered how do guys do the job without a faith, like yeah. without a relationship with Christ. You, I'm sure you can attest this too. Some very dark times in my career where I, I, I didn't, I didn't feel hopeless. I didn't feel like I was without hope, but it was like really dark. And I don't even, I can't even like tell you why I just, you know, just, just, uh, just was not in a good place. And, um, and I don't know, you know, my, my, my faith has just sustained me and maintained me Mm -hmm. for, you know, my whole career and then having, you know, my wife, Lauren, I don't, I don't know if, if I, you know, I was on the job 10 years before I met her. I don't know what would have happened if I would have done another 10, uh, without her. I don't, I, you know, definitely a gift from God, but yeah, no, we don't, we don't do a good job with it. A lot of guys don't, don't talk about it at all. Um, with anybody, you have to talk about it. You, that's part of it is you have to get it out. Like if you don't unload it, Mm -hmm. um, it'll just it'll just eat you alive.
0: Yeah. I learned about a term, uh, from that family member. Um, and actually I'll just put it out there. She's super open about it and, and, uh, there's no like stigma or shame in it. Um, Kendra and I have walked through this intense, uh, road of going through things that require, uh, intensive counseling. Um, and so, it's something in that world is called processing and processing is when you are in processing, you're, you're basically, you're, you're allowed to speak and you, you talk a through, you talk through your, whatever your struggle is. Um, and oddly, I think this is like a form of it. Um, you're not a counselor. Um, and are I, you sure? <laughs> and I haven't uh, paid you to be here. I'm not paying you by the hour for this. Um, <laughs> but this is processing in my in my eyes and i think it's healthy i think it's good yeah cuz cops don't like to talk and cops feel this uh or don't like to talk publicly cuz they think right. they're going to get jammed up or they think oh you know there's no free speech or whatever and look i'm just a guy talking about what i've experienced you know right yeah
1: and and uh yeah the trick is you know when i talk to officers to just to have them feel like they're talking to me Mm -hmm. and that um, my one listener isn't like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, (laughs) hopefully it's more than one. So anyways, yeah, it, it, we don't, we don't do it. We don't do it well in general. Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't go talk to someone until 2019. And that was after, you know, Lauren probably was asking me for, at least two years to go talk to somebody because she's like, You are messed up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and I was, but I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I just, I got some issues, but
0: we've all got issues. Um, so yeah, no, I've kicked it around and I'm not against it. I, I haven't felt personally like I need it. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm not saying that to be like, oh, Yeah, I don't need it. Um, I just, I haven't reached a point where I thought, okay, I need to go talk to somebody. Right. Um, It's not that, not at that point. Yeah. And I think a lot of it probably is, I've essentially been off the street since about uh, early 2017. Yeah. So
1: I think you touch on something there though. I've, I've, I've read an article or two about how the cumulative effect of of officers who are who are on the street or on the job and this idea that um you know for instance like and i i sometimes cringe at making this this uh comparison because every you know our our men and women in the military are the ones who have been in combat have experienced things that are far and Above and beyond what uh, many people in law enforcement experienced, mm-hmm. but you know those in the com in combat are there for you know six, eight, twelve, eighteen months, whatever, and then usually get a a break. Um, they may have to go back and do another tour, but they, there's usually a break in there. And I was I've been read I've I've read a couple articles now that talks about how there's never a break for. A patrol officer. So a patrol officer will basically, yeah, they get, they get a break, they go home, but between, um, sleep deprivation from the amount of court they're going to overtime, they're working. Um, and then their regular patrol shifts, they're, they, they are never fully recovering. So they're just, and they do this for, you know, if you have a guy that's mainly on patrol for 10, 15, 20 years, um, the grind of that, and just the cumulative effect of that uh, is they're finding um, as it's science, by the way, <laughs> at least that's what this article said, um, that 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 can have a more detrimental effect than someone in the military who is in combat for, you know, a year or 18 months. Yeah, uh, because there's an end and there's a long break. Um, even if they get redeployed, there's a long break before they get back and redeployed. But the issue is there. There's not enough. How do you create a rotation? You you almost need to create a rotation then within your departments to pull pull guys off the street after you know whatever you want to like two one year time frame, two year time frame, whatever it is, pull them off and and cycle them through some something else in the department where they're not so on the front lines because those guys on the front lines, especially in urban environments, I mean. When I worked, you know, in the the city I worked in, like nothing compared to like Philadelphia or sure. L.A. or New York or anything like that. But any any officer working in any type of urban environment, I don't think a lot of people have any concept of what's really going on in those in those um, some of those communities that these officers are working in. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, How And then
0: you, the whole ass when you're in patrol um you never really turn it off like mm-mm. and even now um i i'll notice when i turn off the main road headed home if somebody's been behind me for a little longer than i like and then they follow me like i'm i'm on it i'm watching um and i have a couple turnoffs that i before i get to where I'm headed. Right. That I can deviate and, and see if they follow me again. And I have a plan for all that, but right. Um, even now after being off the street for a while, there is still that, uh, that vigilance. But when you're in patrol and every day you're grinding and, uh, you, you go to the store and, you know, your head's on a swivel. Like this may shock you. Um, I'm finally at the point where I don't always have a gun on me if I go to the grocery store. What? I know it's crazy, right? But here's the thing that <laughs> I just that's a, such a lieutenant thing right now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, I think it's because I've, I've been away from the street as long as I have, and I think I have lost some of the hypervigilance. It's not that I'm not aware. I still watch, I still pay attention. I'm just not always armed. Maybe that's crazy, but I think and I wanted to I wanted to hit on this. Um I think some of what we've seen in law enforcement, mistakes that were made. Let's just yeah. Okay. We can we can agree that if you look at the last couple of years, there's certainly some incidents where mistakes were made. And I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to get into the politics of it and all that stuff. But here's the point I'm going to make. When I see those, some of those incidents, um, I see terrified officers making fear based decisions. And I thought for a long time that we have developed a training mentality. In law enforcement that is a sometimes a fear based training mindset, and there's a balance there is a balance, but I think some of what I've seen outside looking in I see body cam and whatever, and I'm like that cop made that decision because they're terrified and they don't know what else to do um and i I think I've tried to just not be afraid, like not be so fearful. You know what I mean? Right. I
1: think I disagree with you to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, I think that I knew you would. (laughs) (laughs) um, I think that I think it could be, I think it's a training issue, Mm -hmm. but I think it's because uh, the, the, there's just not the ability to yes. train enough. So people, so, so guys and gals on the job aren't confident in their abilities. Yes. hundred um, percent. Cause there's been times in my career where I, or in my past career um, where I, I wasn't confident in my abilities and it came down to lack of training. Mm-hmm. And um, so again, I will get a little political, the, the progressive push to take police away and defund the police and yeah just take away from them take money away from them and and take people away from them makes it even harder yes. because policing is a twenty four seven job so you mm-hmm. always need people to do it and you cannot provide proper training if you don't have enough people there's just there's no time to train then um, and good training takes money. It takes money and it takes time Mm -hmm. and it takes repetition. And all those things mean that you need more people to be able to fill the streets and conduct law enforcement so that you can have groups of guys and gals off the street to train. Um, So this this progressive push to defund the police will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. It will actually do exactly what they're saying it's going to prevent. Um, it, it's, it's going to, you're going to have more poorly trained officers. You're going to have more officers who are sleep deprived. You're going to have more officers that are under an extreme amount of stress. And then, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to do exactly what you are claiming. It's not going to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I will say that about the training. I'll also say that, um, if you train and you get your your people proficient and confident in their abilities, then you eliminate that fear to a certain extent. And I'll also say this about training. You train for the 1% of the time Mm -hmm. that things are going to go really bad. And so 99% of the time that training, you know, you don't even need to use that training, but you have to have it so that you can, you can deal with it. So I think there's a lot of facets to that. Um, and then I think too there's always context to it the officer involved mm-hmm. you don't know what past experiences they've had um you know their hypervigilance level and and where they're at mentally um might not be exactly where you at or might not be your proficiency or mm-hmm. what you're observing
0: and what I'm what I'm referencing when I say fear based training is I remember from the academy it's like drilled in your head uh even the little old lady on the car stop might have a gun and try to shoot you. Like she might, she might. But if, if that officer individual officer, and it isn't, it's an individual individuals are making choices for themselves. Are they eating right? Are they, uh, working out? Are they fit? Um, um, do they drink too much? Are they proficient with the tools they have? Um, are they proficient with their hands? Because sometimes you just got to grab a hold of somebody and force them to do what you want them to do. Right. And my criticism is that sometimes it looks like some of these cops are not prepared. And whether that's, whether they're, terrified and afraid and make a fear-based decision because they are not personally prepared for that encounter or whether um, some training mantra that uh, even the little old lady might try to kill you has made them scared. It probably, I, I would say now that I'm like hashing we're talking through it. Right. I would say the error is more on the side of that individual was not Mentally and physically prepared for the no person, who was bigger, stronger, and terrified them, and they made a fear-based decision. I would agree with that. So I not, would
1: agree with that. Like the the no person. Yeah,
0: I mean, and for context, the no person is uh, doesn't matter what you tell them or what you uh, what you might want them to do; they're not going to do it.
1: And it doesn't matter what you say or how you say it, right. or how you de-escalate the situation. It ain't gonna happen. They're There's a no person. They're a no person. It's it's gonna need force, right? And then um, then other people can sit in armchairs, like very comfortable armchairs, and then eat their chips and drink their you know soda and say, "Look at that cop. He doesn't know what he's doing." Um, or you know. I think you should have just talked to him a little nicer. (laughs) So I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little punchy now, Glenn.
0: (laughs) I'm getting a little punchy. (laughs) I like it. This is fun. I'm having (laughs) a fun.
1: Well, I appreciate you coming on. I, uh, I did. I mean, I think we, we talked, we covered a lot. There's a bunch more we could cover, Mm -hmm. but one thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about here at the end was, How, how do you, so how do you stay sane? Like, what are those things you're doing right now that, uh, like the one thing you told me about is modern homesteading. You're like getting, and and I'm like, well, I'm just going to ask him what this is because he's going to, he's going to tell me about it. And he actually probably will tell me more than I ever wanted
0: to know. (laughs) All right. So how do I stay sane? Um. I do enjoy a nice glass of whiskey. So as do I. There's that. Um, I love the barbecue. Used to get uh, a little annoyed with me on night shift because it's three in the morning. Can I just
1: stop you real quick? (laughs) When we rode together, so we would do twelve hour shift. Glenn could talk about barbecuing pork for twelve hours straight.
0: I was into it, man. It was my you new th- thing. <laughs> you do. You
1: get into stuff, and but you, you literally, you would. There were nights I don't, I don't even know if I really said much. Then, uh huh, okay. And you would just talk about how you were gonna barbecue, and you got a new barrel, and you painted it, and <laughs> you got coal in it, and or not coal, wood pellets, and I, I don't know, whatever, <laughs> whatever you were doing. I now I will say this: if you ever have a chance to eat, uh. Glenn's barbecue and the pork he does, or the chicken, or whatever, whatever he's doing, uh, do it. It is excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. So I am passionate about food,
0: in particular barbecue. Yes. So as you should be, it's it's excellent. I've I've so that's that's taken uh that's been a good outlet for me. Really going back to I would say probably like oh eight oh nine right in that time frame. That's when I built my first smoker. That's when I really got into it. And I've kind of stayed on it really for the entire time since then. Um, I do actually have a side private, somewhat of a catering business. Yeah. So if you know me and you want to eat my delicious food, then.
1: Now, if, if someone, <laughs> if someone would look, doesn't know you, is it okay if they reach out to me and sure. then I put them in contact oh, with yeah.
0: you? Okay. Of course. Um, Cool. I prefer to like have some connection. Um, I don't often cook for people I don't know, but it's, it's happened. It's been like referrals have come my way. So from time to time, I do a little bit of that on the side, uh, does help keep me sane. It is a passion of mine, but lately, lately I'm really, here we go (laughs) folks. I'm really into the idea that when I leave this profession, I'm going to settle down somewhere on five to 10 acres. Um, We already have chickens. I have 10 chickens. Uh, I get my beef from a neighbor. I get my pork from a neighbor to a local butcher shop. Uh, We garden and I would just like to be a farmer, a little more self-sufficient and a little more, uh, you know, when I eat a tomato from my garden, we raised tomatoes last year. That tomato doesn't taste that, like. Hold on. Is it raised or grew? Grew. Like I you guess. grew tomatoes. Yeah, I guess I grew tomatoes. <laughs> Listen, my tomatoes last year, it doesn't taste like a tomato from Wise Family Market. Okay. It's like a different food, it's like a different thing. Eggs are the same way. Uh, an egg that comes from a chicken in your backyard that you feed the right things and you take care of and you actually care for, because I, I believe this is going to sound a little kooky. I think if you love an animal, (laughs) like a chicken, the eggs you get from that chicken are going to be better for you than some chicken in some chicken house with like 300,000 neighbors. We have, we have, listen,
1: in this country, we have redefined love and you are are jumping on that train when you say <laughs> loving chickens.
0: Here's what I mean by it. Our chickens were raised from like little peeps. They all have names. Uh, I built a really sweet, what I call a chicken Taj Mahal <laughs> this past summer. They have a great space to do what chickens love to do. These are cared for chickens and we get amazing eggs. They how many need. chickens do you have? 10. One's a rooster.
1: Which you need. Yeah. Um. So, and then how, like how many eggs do you get per week? Then like, what, we what are we
0: average right now? Like five or six a day. Okay. So, in. In the spring and summer, they lay more. Winter's kind of a downtime, but okay. Do you sell these eggs? Nah, we eat them or give them away. I just gave a dozen to a coworker. Can I? Yesterday. Can I get in on this? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I love nothing more than to share eggs because here is the thing: we if you if you have an egg that's like a backyard raised egg.
1: Oh, I I totally from believe a healthy that's chicken. chicken.
0: Oh yeah, like it tastes different. It looks different. It's a beautiful thing. There's like life in it. Yeah. And even our our rooster, he's a bit of a maniac, so to speak. Uh, I guess he would be if it's just him and nine hens. A lot of the eggs, when you crack them open, you know, you'll see a little speck in the yolk and it's like this little red speck. Okay. Basically means he did his job to fertilize the egg. Now you're not going to taste it. You're not going to, you know, it, it doesn't change the egg. But if you took that egg and you either put it under a hen that was willing to sit on it or to put it in an incubator, you'd get a chicken in the end, right? So it's wow. a fertilized egg. So what I believe is there's life in that egg. It's, as God intended, a fertilized, beautiful, delicious egg. I've been out in my backyard and, and heard an egg get laid because it like dropped and hit the little floor and then in the laying box. Uh-huh. I reached under the chicken and found a warm egg and took it right into the house and made it because it's like, it's like nothing else. It's the freshest egg you can possibly get.
1: I don't, uh, I don't, I don't disagree (laughs) with you. And if you, if you, if you, uh, want to get me in on something like when you,
0: I'll
2: I'll even pay, I'll even
0: pay a little bit for this. Not necessary. We have a surplus of eggs. I will bring you some eggs. Awesome. Awesome. I'll drop them off at the store. Perfect. Um so someday would I love to walk away from law enforcement and have a peaceful spot of land and raise maybe a couple of steer, some chickens, maybe a couple of pigs every year. Um, and get back to my roots and and live a little bit more from the land. Man, that sounds like paradise to me. Yeah. So That's cool, I, I stay mean- seen by getting into that kind of stuff and my my shirt I'm wearing has a little phrase on it. I can't I can't read it from here. My shirt says uh you know the the phrase resistance is futile. You know, it's like this tyrannical uh hopeless uh phrase it's that's used. This shirt says persistence is fertile. So, if you, you stick go. with it, if you're persistent and you just don't give up, There you go. Live a beautiful life, man,
1: Glenn. The most interesting man. (laughs) Um,
0: This has been a lot of fun. Now,
1: I, 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 I I really appreciate you coming on. And here's here's my my final question I need to ask you. I had it actually at the top of my list, and it 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 got pushed all the way to the bottom because we kind of conversation has been good. Mm -hmm. Can you speak some Pennsylvania Dutch for us?
0: No you don't know how to, or? Uh, that's a decision that, that I won't speak Pennsylvania <laughs> touch okay. on your podcast. Okay.
1: I, I, that soundbite
0: will never, will never, uh, go away. I was pretty sure. <laughs> I was pretty
1: sure that you could speak, speak some. And I was like, well, I'm definitely going to ask him if he can. Um, cause I, I can't, I can't, I can talk with a very, dutchy accent and yeah, you my can. my last year uh on the job i broke it out one day back in the office with the guys on my unit and uh they were howling they could not believe <laughs> I, was gonna say, I bet they appreciate it yeah man. yeah uh but i was like but i was like i can be one up with some pennsylvania dutch so you won't you won't do it no <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> all right there you Listen, have it sound bites live forever <laughs> <laughs>
1: there you have it i wouldn't do anything with it other than put it out into the airways and just put it out for the entire universe right to consume well i i do uh really appreciate you coming on it's been a great conversation um and uh
0: yeah thanks parting words from me i gotta say like there isn't anybody I've worked with that I respect more than you. I appreciate that you're a man of absolute integrity and true faith and learned a lot from and hated to see you um walk away but I think I'm one of the people that got it and understood it and yeah and I think I always supported you in it and um I think this is great what you're doing. It's been a lot of fun yeah i uh so thank you for thanks for your time man appreciate yeah it. i i
1: i enjoyed uh the job i enjoyed working with you and other guys I loved it and uh yeah but i'm i'm in I'm enjoying this too um even though i I don't quite know what I'm doing yet but um all that to say if you are still in law enforcement if you're still doing the job um I really appreciate you i appreciate you glenn and uh you do something that I really love to do and I'm no longer called to do. And just like I say at the end of every episode, uh, if you're in law enforcement, kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreaker. Don't ever stop doing it. And uh, there are many of you who are not in law enforcement but support Diakonas, a cop's calling, and just want to better understand the calling. And I appreciate you also for giving us your time and your ear. Don't forget to give the podcast five stars and write a review. That would be awesome and helpful to me. You can follow the podcast on Facebook at Diakonas, a cop's calling, and Diakonos is D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S, A Cops Calling. And that's a Facebook page. And then on Twitter, uh, you can follow me at MTonyW. Thanks, Glenn.
0: Thank you, Anthony. Peace.
1: Peace.